Welcome to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Each episode, LRB Health's Keith Viglioli will talk to the healthcare insiders who are helping to fundamentally transform our healthcare industry. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Keith Viglioli, I feel like we ought to have some sound effect, lockdown sound effect. This is like month 11 of the podcast lockdown. I feel more like we should be on a morning talk show here Monday morning, and, and, I'm, and I'm looking at both of us with our big headsets on, and I'm like, man, we should be on a talk show. It's sports radio. We do look authentic, but the lockdown certainly hit uh, the entire industry last month when J.P. Morgan, which I think is in its 39th year, yeah, I think went that's right. virtual for the first time, which I'm sure... I remember the, I skipped one after going for about a dozen. I couldn't go because my kid was sick and it just threw me off for months. And I don't know how other people are dealing with this because the lockdown obviously has already thrown our lives into turmoil. But how did you deal not shaking 10 million hands in four days? Did it affect you physically? And getting profusely sick afterwards, which is usually the case. Uh, I can remember JP Morgan, one of my partners, was was so sick on the last day, and it's like it was a quick contagion. But you know, it's funny you bring it up that way because it really is the start of the year every year. Oh yeah, in the healthcare world, and it did feel different this year. It felt odd. You know, I said to our guest Dan, who was a very good friend. I said, Dan was like, and Dan's been doing this as, as long as I probably longer than I have going to him. And I'm like, was it a non-event this year? That was sort of my first ask to him in the interview because it felt like a non-event. I'm sitting in the screen, no different than looking at you right now. And, and I'm just listening to a bunch of people present. Uh, I could always go back to them because they all were recorded. Yeah. I could bounce between rooms. I'm not running up and down a bunch of flight of stairs trying to run out, run over people and, and make meetings that, of course, I'm always late to and apologizing. So <laughs> one side of it was very positive. I have to be honest. Like I, I got a lot done. I probably got a lot more insight from a lot more companies than I normally do. But on the flip side, there was a lot of downside. There was not the random meetings. There was not the cocktail hours where you bump into a lot of stuff. And I was also joking with him, like, you know, most venture firms and even PE firms for that matter, you know, they probably generate, I know we generate probably 80 leads usually from that event that are real strong, potential investable companies. And my guess is we probably sometimes invest at least out of one of those sometimes after a long period of time. But think about all the investments that won't be made because we didn't have that event. Yeah. And I bet a good percentage of them, or at least a percentage of them comes from those just bumping into someone literally on a corner somewhere and saying, hey, I got to talk to you about those things. It's those little serendipitous meetings that often lead to some of the best opportunities. Yeah. And I think our, our fabulous back office team had probably, they probably were the happiest of anybody because <laughs> they got to actually spend the holidays with their families rather than <laughs> trying to crank through a bunch of meetings and schedules and all the other stuff that usually happens over the holidays because of it. Absolutely. Well, JP Morgan, you're right, is, is both energizing and exhaustive at the same time, if that's possible. And you've got a great conversation with Dan Mickelson, the CEO of Strata Decision Technologies. You talked to him last year after last year's JP Morgan. I assume you're going to talk to him next year when hopefully we'll be back in person again. But what was Dan's takeaway from this uh, very odd JP Morgan week? Yeah, I think we, we got our first syndicated guest, I guess, I would say, <laughs> in that, you know, Dan does a great job with Becker's doing a written recap. And then he and I had talked last week and we've been friends for more than a decade. I said, Dan, why don't we post that publication? Because I'm going to make sure that those guys get that first. Why don't we just do a recording of that so we can get a little more color on the actual article? And so he agreed. And he's now agreed to do this every year. So every February, I hope we can 
bring this JPM sort of recap uh, via Dan because he's got such great insights. And to your question for this year, he took the same kind of approach as last year, the top 10 sort of takeaways from the discussions of the what usually is the 39th floor at the West End, which is the nonprofit track. And so some people know this, some people don't, but there's typically about 26-ish presentations from nonprofit organizations in a row on the first two days of JP Morgan on Monday and Tuesday, usually in the morning to mid-afternoon. And you know that's the likes of every major health system around the country, a couple of large payers as well presented this year. And the takeaway this year, which I think was telling at the headline, was these folks are too vital to fail. And so playing off a little bit about what happened in 08 with the financial services organizations. But we've talked about this in the past. So many people throw darts at so many of our large healthcare organizations around this country and and say how bad it is and all this, that, and the other thing. But like, what would have happened if we didn't have them? You know, they have been holding up this country for the better part of, you know, going on a year now and have dealt with rush after rush after rush of these waves. And, you know, we talked to, in our firm, we probably talked to, I don't know, four to five health systems and payers a week. And we have gauged it, you know, month by month in terms of what's been going on. And it's been just interesting to watch these organizations pivot over the balance of the last year, their day-to-day operations. I mean, I think the most interesting part about our you know, sometimes called industrial medical complex that we have now built up, whether we like it or not in this country, is that it's very resilient. And it sort of ebbs and flows and jabs and, and jibes and whenever anything is thrown at it. And this has been the biggest issue that's been thrown at it in many, 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 many moons. You know, we had a small, small blip with Ebola down in uh, Texas Health Resources a number of years back that, hope, thank God, got contained. But this is everywhere, right? So we've all experienced this incredible last wave, which hopefully, knock on wood, is going down for good and, and the other variants don't start creeping in here. Mm-hmm. But it's every corner of the country. There wasn't a health system repair that we talked to over the balance in the number, last couple of months that weren't talking about two simultaneously very difficult things. Controlling, obviously, the input of people coming into the ED and the organization at very high acute levels that have covid and then also trying to simultaneously roll out the vaccine. And that was a lot of the discussion at JPM as well, which is, you know, how do they get through that? And then because it's a financial event, what do those financials look like? And I think the other telling thing, and obviously the CARES Act had a lot to do with this, is, you know, a lot of them come out the backside pretty okay. They're going to just squeak by. Some are doing actually fairly well, but some are just going to squeak by. And then, you know, hopefully we'll get back to a little bit of normal financial operations in, in 2022. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, on the payer front, we had our guest Pat from Blue Cross Mass an episode or so ago. And, you know, we were starting to see that pivot where the mm-hmm. providers got hit really hard financially in the beginning and the middle part of this. Now it's starting to shift a little bit to the payers. If you just saw United's last earnings announcement, they actually had a, a loss, I believe. And part of that is because people are going to start flipping around all of their electives, all of their delayed screenings. And that's really going to come down on the payers over the next year or two. And and Pat brought that up on our last discussion too. So a lot of that was part of the chatter online at JP Morgan. Oh, that's a great point. There is definitely going to be a a bolus working through and we're seeing it on the MedTech side as well. I host the Device Talks podcast and it's a constant conversation about the loss of elective surgery and when that's going to come back. and, And Q4 wasn't great. But folks are hoping to see some sort of restoration in the coming year. So going forward for you, I'm just curious, 
we're seeing a stress test. We've seen a stress test of the electoral system, which may or may not be, which revealed some cracks and some strengths and it endured, but we'll see if it gets to be strengthened at some points. Are we going to see some, we've seen a stress test now of the healthcare system. Do you see that's the results of that stress test sort of providing a roadmap for you and others to shore things up where they need to be shored up? Yeah. I mean, I think at the, again, at the industrial medical complex side of this, and this has been written about a lot in the press, but it was also some of the chatter in that, you know, in the presentations, you know, scale came back up a lot. And mm-hmm. I think consolidation is going to rear its head again a bit more as, you know, some of these systems, you know, are having a hard time getting to a, a certain size on a certain scale. So I do think we're going to see consolidation continuing its track. And I think the other thing is just sort of how does the care setting change? You know, we've been spending an enormous amount of time in the broader care at home landscape, uh, even before the pandemic as a firm. But the pandemic obviously has put that on spotlight. But I think you're going to start seeing very different footprints in this industrial medical complex over the next couple of years. And I think that's the roadmap. I think the roadmap is about, you know, leading with CMS with, with site neutrality payments, which CMS does not care where they care about outcomes, but they don't care where the, the actual treatment is hopefully the lowest cost, you're going to start seeing more and more changes. And you're seeing another tenant that came out of the discussion at JP Morgan was a lot of systems starting to think about ambulatory surgery centers and other Mm -hmm. non-acute like assets rather than building more and more towers. Now, people are still building towers, but I think you're going to see a lot more news fronts on the roadmap about non-acute proliferation, including home activities. And I'd say the last thing that's on the roadmap also is this, we talk about this a lot, this buy-build partner mentality for health systems, which, you know, usually if you're in a product organization, which we've all been in, you know, that's what you think about. All right, do I build this organically? Do I acquire something? Do I partner with somebody to get there? I think that's starting to fuse into the health system leadership in a much, much bigger way. And the payers have kind of always been there a little bit faster than some of the health systems. But I think the health system leadership now you're starting to see that more and more. You're going to see that on the roadmap. And what that means, I think, for the, the new emerging company landscape, I think is really positive news. Because mm-hmm. I think they're going to be better receptivity to some of the discussions that are going to be happening with some of these new emerging companies that are really starting to get size and shape now, at least ones that are mostly in the delivery of care side. But I think people are going to be more willing to have those discussions now. Excellent. Well, it's great thoughts. Uh, I guess it was a, a productive virtual meeting or a virtual gathering, whatever you want to call it. But let's hear directly from Dan Mickelson, the CEO of Strata Decision Technology. All right. Welcome back to the Healthcare is Hard podcast. We have a special guest, a repeat guest, no less. And it feels like we're hopefully, Dan, going to start annualizing this. But I'm ecstatic to have the CEO of Strata, Dan Michelson, involved yet again on a JPM recap. Dan, welcome back. It's good to see you, Keith. Very good to see you. Missed you. Yeah, we're not in person. It's not as, it's not as fun as it normally is. <laughs> we're having fun uh, in a virtual sense. <laughs> That's right. Last year, we had like the serious setup. We had like the professional studio. This year, we both just have goofy headsets on looking at each other in Zoom. Yeah, you're exactly the same experience we're having with everybody else in our life right now. (laughs) (laughs) Zoom to Zoom. But cool. So I love, as you know, and I think many love, as you know, your recaps with Beckers on the JP Morgan. And that came out last week, I think. You know, I had a chance to take a look at that. And I think part of what we thought was trying to bring that a little bit alive on these podcasts each year. And I think you did a great job last year doing that. 
And this year's totally different. Like you and I were hanging out in a room thinking everything was totally fine. And a month later we were doing this. So, you know, instead of doing our normal kind of opener, which is, you know, your background, because I did happen to go through our session last year today, I'd love to just maybe probe a little bit on your background and say, you know, what's maybe some things that you didn't say last year that might be revealing to people that are listening about, you know, some interesting insights in your background. So you've done a lot. You've been on the pharma side, you've been on the, you know, all script side, healthcare IT side for a long time. Now you have the biggest decision support platform in the industry, you know, maybe a snippet or two about some fun insights and then we'll, we'll move into the, the content. Yeah. Well, we actually just had our company kickoff meeting. So we had uh, 450 people on a platform kind of like this uh, kicking off the year, which was a little bit different uh, for me. And the one thing that I shared with the group is I was just kind of looking back at this. Uh, but when I was about one year out of school, I, like many people, didn't know what I really wanted to do and wasn't really happy with what I was doing. And one of the things I considered was being an architect. Now, I you know, didn't have an engineering background and I kind of talked myself out of it. But you know, the idea behind it was wouldn't it be cool to leave your fingerprints on something? And so like, you know, I don't know, I've always thought long-term. So 10, whatever, 15 years down the road when I had kids, I could say that building, you know, that, that was me. And ultimately what I did is I chose to go into healthcare and leave my fingerprints there. And that's really what I've spent my career doing. So, you know, modern architecture essentially is technology. So, so the last 30 years of my life has just been trying to apply technology in some way to healthcare to solve problems, which I know is a lot of the work that you've done too. And right now, Strata, you know, you and I were just talking about this. Uh, half of US healthcare is flowing through Strata. Uh, so we work with over 2,000 hospitals, 400 health systems in terms of how they plan, analyze, and ultimately really drive their financial performance. So kind of got to being an architect, but maybe in a, a little bit different of a way. <laughs> That's right. And, and I think, you know, it's a fascinating platform in my opinion because i think a lot of people don't fully appreciate the extent of how much is driven strategically and financially through these decision support platforms which in time there were many and now there's mostly just you and so you know we're also we're joking in the beginning about we're not joking but talking about sort of just some of the data you have now and some of the insights that you can bring to bear to not only your customers, but really to the industry. So back to putting your fingerprints on it. I mean, you really have, I just saw a report from you all from another third party, but using your data last week, and I was blown away by what was in there. Yeah, let me, and let me, it's probably gonna be the most interesting thing for everyone to listen to. So I could un, unpack that a little bit, but just so everybody understands. So Strata provides a cloud-based platform that's used for finance, essentially, for how they do the financial planning, their cost accounting, how they drive their performance management. We give our customers the option to opt in for free to a data network that we call Stratosphere. We figure it's their data they shouldn't have to pay for. And they can use that for benchmarking and comparative analytics. So when COVID hit, uh, the big question was, well, what's happening and what's going to happen? So essentially what we did is we took a cohort. We have 115 health systems now, the 400 that have opted into this network. So we took a cohort of 50 of them, representing about 400 hospitals, and we just looked at essentially what was happening to patient and procedure volumes. So inpatient, outpatient, observation visits, ED, all the different procedures. And we were able to really dive deep. And we've essentially been publishing that every two weeks. And that's become the national monitor for how COVID-19 is impacting hospitals financially and operationally. And one of the things that we've seen, and not, not surprising, is that 
inpatient volumes are still down by five or 10%. That's been consistent over the last five months. So they may not be coming back really anytime soon. We're seeing a bolus now with COVID uh, hitting, uh, but those are COVID patients. Those will uh, start to uh, dissipate. So we're still going to see this kind of leveling off at a volume that was lower than it was before. Uh, ED volume is down by 20% for everybody in every region. Observations are visits are down by 10 to 15% for everybody, every region. And then we've also looked at things like telehealth, you know, so we can see how many visits are happening for telehealth, how many aren't. And right now it's leveling out at about 10%, you know, somewhere in that range. So, you know, everyone says the future is hard to predict. At this point, it actually isn't. <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> what, what we're going to see is basically those kind of levels throughout the first two to three quarters of the year and uh, calendar quarters. And then in the fourth quarter, we'll probably start to see, you know, things pick up a little bit more. But that's mainly people are looking at 2021 as sort of like uh, keep it going the best we can. And they're thinking more ahead to 2022 in terms of the comeback to normal or however you want to refer, refer to that. Yeah. And let's talk about that in the context of, you know, predicting the future. A lot of times, as you've said, and I have thought about, which is, you know, JP Morgan really does set your year, right? You know, it's kind of an odd year this year because we all were, again, looking at Zoom and doing this virtually through their platform. The one interesting data point I saw in some of the news is that they actually had 12,000 confirmed attendees this year, which is even more than last year, which was 10. I think they opened it up a little bit more because it was virtual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the first question I have for you on JP Morgan, which is a little bit off, you know, you didn't address in the Becker's article, but this little sort of thought in the back of my head was, was it a non-event this year? Like when you broaden the lens and you think about it, could we have done without it this year? Yeah. I, you know, in some ways we could have, I, you know, you and I have been to JP Morgan. It's a fire hazard, you know? So it's usually actually more of like 4,000 people squeezing into the Westin and then about another 45,000 people jumping around San Francisco, having meetings at every corner that they can find. So I think the great thing about those meetings, I think anybody would say this at the end of the day, is the opportunity to bump into people you know and to meet people that you don't. You know, so from that perspective, yeah, it is absolutely a non-event. But there were some interesting things coming out of it. You know, so it's still where people like to break their news. It's still, like you said, where people like to set their strategy and kind of talk about what they are and aren't doing. So I think every event now, when it's virtual, is a non-event. Uh, you know, the inauguration kind of felt a little bit different, <laughs> Yeah, right. even though historically, you know, obviously as significant as any inauguration ever. So, you know, I, I don't think we're going to we're going to be able to bypass that in any way, in any form, in any event in our lives, much less at J.P. Morgan. Right. Yeah. And thoughts of, you know, because of the tenure and going there a lot and being a student of it to a certain degree, you know, what was lost and what was gained this year from it? I mean, what you know, how when you think about that. You know, and I'll give you some of my perspective afterwards because I've thought about this as well. But I'd just be curious your opinion because, you know, again, you, you've been in and out of these things for so long. Yeah, I'll be interesting to hear your take. But I do think that more people attending, like you said, is a win because I do think it, as a closed meeting, that's not exactly sending the best message for the largest healthcare investor conference in the world. So it's really difficult to get in. You got to get invited uh, in, as you know. Um, so I think that was a net positive that more people were listening in and able to participate. And then, you know, I was able to jump into some sessions because they were all recorded and you could see them all uh, instead of just listening into a recording. But you could actually see the recording and see the people presenting. And I found that super helpful. So I jumped into Moderna's presentation, the Pfizer's presentation. I would have never been able to get to those because I 
listen to all the nonprofit provider presentations. That's where I spend all my time. And, uh, you know, those presentations, I guess, a little bit timely <laughs> to listen to. And so I, I found that helpful. But, you know, like what was lost is what I referred to before. I just, the connections you can make. And, you know, healthcare in every industry is still ultimately about relationships. And things are done in the margins in every aspect of life. You know, it's kind of what happens in between, not what happens on stage, both personally and professionally. Uh, that's where relationships are truly formed and where you, where you learn a lot too. Yeah. And I totally agree with both those. I mean, my, the thing that was so interesting to me, and, and I'll probably reveal a little bit of my ADD here. Cause I always say that like you sit through all 26 presentations of nonprofits, I get through like 12 and I'm like, all right, I'm going to go out, grab a Coke and I'm going to come back. But I found the ability to jump in and out of a bunch of stuff without climbing three or four flights of stairs and around hundreds and thousands of people was really refreshing. And I did the same where I was, a lot, you know, I got into a bunch of stuff that I would have never gotten to, including a lot of private company tracks, which is actually relevant to what we do. And then I think your point about loss is dead on. The other funny thing that goes through my head, and then we'll jump into a little bit of your Becker's recap is how many deals won't get done because we weren't in person? How many deals or serendipity of people who wouldn't get hired or who you ran into or, you know, whatever have you, I, I, I find, you know, to give people some perspective, we probably generate I'd say 60 to 80 new company leads typically at a JP Morgan. Wow. And that did not happen for all venture firms and private equity firms this year. Hmm. So it's interesting. And I didn't see a lot of people proactively go out and make attempts to kind of come up with a virtual surround event. Frankly, I saw, you know, a bunch of people say, Hey, I haven't talked to you in a while. Let's get together the week of JP Morgan. I'm like, well, why do we have to get together the week of JP Morgan? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Can I make one comment on that though? I don't think the healthcare deal machine slowing down just a little bit (laughs) is uh, after what we saw in 2020 is necessarily the worst thing in the world. Uh, I mean, the amount of activity I think, you know, when you reflect back, I mean, obviously there's a disconnect between what happened financially, what happened personally for people, um, just so many sad stories, but then a disconnect between the level of activity from an investment perspective is kind of, you know, I think surprising to most people just to see the amount of traction last year. I mean, as you know, we did a transaction, Keith. So we acquired EPSI uh, from Allscripts. That was uh, the only transaction we've ever done in the history of our company, which is 25 years old. I think the complexion of that may have been different, you know, if things weren't the way that they were. So I don't know. It, it was a really interesting year. That's a topic for another day, I guess. Well, actually, I want to come back to that at the end of this because I do want to get your read on that. I, I, I think, you know, there's some very interesting thoughts to go on there in terms of that default. That's kind of my point about the opener question about a non-event. Like there's so much flow right now and so much activity right. right now. I'm not so sure anybody really even needed it or needed those additional leads because there's so much activity. But let's it's kind of kind of what I was trying to say. You said it better. <laughs> Let's come back. So I, you know, I, I spent some time reading your Becker's recap. And I guess my first question really is around, you know, what you truly meant where, you know, you had this title of healthcare is too vital to fail. And, you know, I think I understand it literally, but I'm curious. So how, how you got to that? Yeah, I, I just listen. I think it's a story that we should celebrate, you know, quite frankly, you know, the front line in this pandemic were our healthcare providers and they've been I don't know, a lot of people have been taking a lot of shots at them, you know, for a long time. And those are easy shots to take because improvements absolutely can be made. Uh, but I think people tend to oversimplify what it is, you know, that our healthcare providers do. And it, you know, quite frankly, it, it aggravates me. So sitting here and listening to these 20-odd presentations, 
the thing you're blown away by is that their revenue was cut by 50%, right? Uh, they are the largest employer in the communities that they serve. Uh, there is no doubt about that. 90% of the time, you know, that's the case. And they're walking into harm's way, you know, and having to manage to this. So their volumes dropped dramatically. Their costs skyrocketed because of having to acquire PPE and ventilators and everything else. And yet they managed through it. You know, here they are. They're all still standing. And, you know, the viability of our healthcare delivery system was tested in what I have referred to as the largest financial crisis in the history of healthcare. And they came out the other side. And that's a great story. And, and so I think, you know, unlike banks that were, quote unquote, too big to fail, and that was kind of what we talked about in 2008, the point I was trying to make is, hey, listen, there is proof everywhere you look that healthcare is absolutely too vital to fail. And while people may nibble around the edges of trying to be disruptive to healthcare providers and carving out different things here and there, the essential, the guts, uh, you know, of what they provide and the people who provide it is something that we should be celebrating and quite frankly, thanking them for, you know, with that said, you know, part of my point, and I think we're going to get to this is like, yes, it, it, they did prove that they're too vital to fail, but they're going to have to make some changes in order to stay that way <laughs> moving forward. And there's a lot of things, hopefully, that they took from the year uh, relative to what occurred. And what I was really trying to capture is if you drew a line between all of these presentations and said, what is it, what are the 10 things that they need to apply uh, moving forward in order to stay vital, what would those things be? I think it's a really interesting point because uh, probably some of you, I get very annoyed. It's probably because I live in the echo chamber of a lot of early stage investing, but I get really annoyed when people just continue to throw darts at the existing system because the existing system exists for a reason. And yes, it's not perfect. And yes, it's not completely tech enabled. And yes, it's not this and not that. But to your point, it's essential for the backbone of this country. And especially, you know, what we're also starting to see is this intersection. I've said this before of clinical delivery and public health yeah. and people all have a ridiculous appreciation for that now after living through this for almost a year yeah well i thought it was ironic the day before i think a couple of days before the jp morgan conference who of all people made an announcement in healthcare jp morgan and amazon and berkshire hathaway that haven uh, was being folded and a lot of people came to say and said like oh god you know that's such a surprise they can't believe that it didn't work and i'm like not surprising at all I mean, if you are going to take a $4 trillion industry and say you're going to fix it, I think you kind of lack in humility, but you're all the way full to the top in terms of arrogance. You know, healthcare is an incredibly complex thing. And absolutely, there are problems and there's absolutely things that need to be fixed. You've got to dive deep and then dive deeper and then deeper and deeper and deeper and niche yourself your way through it. You know, find a problem you can work on and then help. But don't think you can come in because of a name brand, you know, and just uh, walk on top of an industry. I don't care what it is, education, healthcare, any of the essentials, you know, and fix it on your own. And so believe me, I'm not trying to sit here and defend the domain or, or, or protect the fort. Uh, not at all. I mean, I, I think healthcare providers need to do a lot more than they're doing today. And I think they know that too, but it is difficult to move any business that's a two to three to $5 billion business with 30, 40, 50,000 employees. Uh, where you're seeing millions of people every year, you know, so it's, it's easy to take shots on the outside, but to get on the inside and drive change. I mean, that's what you've done in your career. That's what literally everybody who's probably listening to this may um, do this rant, but that's what, what, how they've spent their time too. Yeah. And it'll be interesting, not just for the healthcare providers, but we've been bringing a few more pairs sure. into some interviews lately. And 
a great interview with Blue Cross Blue Shield Mass, the last one. And Pat Gilligan was really interesting points about how most plans think about three-year time horizons in terms of how they plan. And you live in the strategic planning world. And, you know, you're starting to see it. Like you just saw United come with a pretty big miss on the profit line and making whatever things that they're saying that happen for. But it'll be interesting to see sort of, you know, does this flip itself? So does the issues and then the new normal of how do you manage as a, as we're not talking about integrated providers here, but, but solely healthcare delivery organizations. And then what happens to the payers over the next two or three years, even though we might be out yeah. of it, is there an overhang yeah. from a, and you know that from your perspective and what you're doing as well? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. It really is, Keith. I mean, so this whole pay provider model proved itself out now because these guys were leveraged or they were hedged and they were able to, obviously their volume went down, so their cost went down. So the people who were integrated, like the Kaisers of the world or Intermountains and others, you know, were pretty well prepared, you know, because they were diversified in terms of their revenue streams. And obviously I think the payers are going <laughs> to, you know, move more downstream and it, it will become more integrated because it needs to. I mean, the disconnect from a consumer perspective you know, continues to be a head scratcher for everybody. And because of that problem, people are going to continue to innovate for sure. Yeah. And it was interesting listening to Bert Intermountain give a presentation, which to me didn't have, I mean, it had a little bit of change, but not much change financially from what I could tell. And then comparatively to seeing some regional, a couple of the regional healthcare systems that, you know, are pure clinical delivery only. And, you know, you're seeing serious margin compression. And again, you would know that better than me, but. Well, well I'll tell you, I mean, because we work within our mountain and I just give Bert, Greg Johnson, the team, a ton of credit. I mean, they have pivoted on how they look at things operationally to look at, you know, have a more of a service line orientation. They've completely changed their financial planning process. So they have. They no longer, Bert never, no longer refers to a budget. Now he calls it a plan. And they moved to that more agile, dynamic planning type of approach, so more of a rolling forecast. And that is a huge, you know, you and I talked about that trend last year. And I told you, yep. I guess I'm right about, even though a broken clock is right twice a day, I guess. Um, so I was telling you that I think that everyone's going to be shifting here in, in short order. I didn't know COVID was coming, but COVID has basically prompted everybody to ditch their budget and now take a different approach to planning. But, you know, Bert's approach is very contrarian. They've been able to be stewards of their resources and really drive down costs and pass that along to patients and drive affordability. So they've been lowering and not raising rates in a number of areas. So it's, it's impressive. And then sort of digging down the things that I took away, additional things sort of in the detail. And there were some things that I was thinking about during the presentations too, you know, just cite them all. We kind of peck through them a little bit, but but I think you know your number one point about labor, you know, and what happens to labor was a big thing for me. I think the public health point near and dear to my heart, frankly, and then the home, you know, care at home, which we've been spending an exorbitant amount of time on in the investing landscape, and then finally, you know, scale reared its ugly head again as a thematic, and you cited it as well this year, um, where it really wasn't there last year, in my opinion, at the level that it was a like, two years ago. So I'm curious, just sort of on those four topics, sort of your thoughts and, and maybe starting with labor, because, you know, we've had just this insatiable appetite in healthcare of up and to the right hiring, with, even with all the investment we're making in technology. This was the first time, to your point, where there was a real impact, especially early on, because I think most providers didn't even really know what was going on. And so they furloughed a bunch 
But where does labor go? Do we get more right size? Do we finally get some of the ROI back from the technology investments we're making? I mean, sort of where, where's your thought on that one? Yeah, it's the old uh, healthcare moves slow, but change happens overnight. Yeah, right. Kind of thing. Right. Uh, you know, so I, I guess um, you definitely see people making inroads to thinking different, right? So the virtual health model is an interesting one because people had to pivot, they didn't have a choice. So that prompted a lot of change very quickly. But, you know, that requires a different workflow on the provider side in order to integrate the virtual and the offline and the online visits. And so a lot of people were stuck up in the operations of that for good reason. But others were thinking very strategically about that, where they were saying, hey, man, listen, we can, if our market area was 1x, now it could be 2x or 3x because we could further our reach, you know, with that kind of strategic platform. So you see people on both sides of that, on all of these issues, on labor, you know, I saw organizations like THR, you and I were talking about them before, Rick McCorder is a CFO there and their team. I really made a decision that they were going to staff up, not down. So they actually took it as an opportunity to grow their team, which is helping them now because the second wave is hitting. You know, they attained some incredible talent. Now, a lot of these organizations didn't furlough, didn't do pay cuts, and really used that as an opportunity to build, you know, to strengthen their relationship with their employees. But at the same time, listen, we're in the middle of a crisis, you know? So I think it's difficult to say the future is going to be A, B, or C. It's almost implying that now is going to be forever, which it won't. So I think you're going to see a very big swing back to managing cost, the driving productivity. Uh, People are trying to automate those models. You know, I think, you know, a lot of people said digitized clinical care was sort of the theme of last year, but digitized operations will be the theme of this year. I think that's about right. I think they, they did a student body right to what was most important at the time. Uh, last year was not a year to worry about cost. And let's say you wanted to spin up some activity to drive out costs in an organization. Where are you going to find people to sit down or, or, or have a virtual call with? I mean, everybody was to the wall just in terms of trying to get things done. So I do think you're seeing already a swing back to that focus because people need to. Uh, because of what I shared before, the volumes are still going to be down. They're still going to be depressed. You're going to see this shift in care that is less profitable in many cases uh, for many of these providers. So even though, Keith, some of them are at 95 or 98% of capacity now, their mix is way off. I mean, elective procedures are way down. Total hips and total knees still way down. So the high volume, high value, high margin procedures, they're still way down. So you can look at volume macro, but when you look at it micro on a procedure level, the story is not a good one. Yeah, and that's some of the discussions we've had with some of our partners, uh, at least health system partners, has been interesting. I hadn't thought about it this way, which hits into that, which is, you know, everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people know that, you know, these folks run their organizations at these typical utilization numbers, right? The difference is, is your point, the mix, but also the level of acuity, when you think about how high acuity they have in a certain percentage of this occupancy is nowhere near what they normally have. They have a much more manageable set of patients. So I think that's also taxing the organization. But back to the labor point, I think the thing that I was struck by on the presentations, and you hit on it, is you know most times you hear those presentations, you hear a lot of the same things. Everybody took a little bit of a different stance, in my opinion, on labor. Some people furloughed, some people laid off, which you never hear about either of those things in healthcare. And then some people, to your point, put the pedal down. 
and some people took a cultural stance and said, hey, by the way, we told every employee, we're not laying anybody off. We're all in this together. Yeah. And so I think that was the most fascinating part about that point to, to what you're bringing up. I think it was fascinating. But if you look at the numbers, the numbers tell the story. Right? So, I mean, initially, the first wave was a regional wave. You know, it was not a national wave. I think the thing that people aren't really noticing now is this is everywhere, you know, at the same time. And so you mentioned we, we were just referring to THR. I mean, Texas is getting hit so hard, you know, right now. It's unbelievable. And so, you know, this is a new experience for many, but here's what I would say. It's silver lining. People were prepared and they are ready now to to deal with the pandemic. They've developed those muscles and that is, um, you know, there's something to be said for that. Yeah. We've heard that consistently across the country, which to your point, like people have the muscles now, it's the new normal. They know how to operate this. But on your point about changing care settings and i've been talking about this a lot lately and it's in your write-up which is is this care at home movement not just telehealth but really thinking about site neutrality because that's what cms has been pushing is that here to stay now and are people really serious about hey we're going to make serious investments in enterprise rpm systems you know extensions etc etc i think you just you refer to cms i mean that that is the key right there it's follow the money you know, if you put the right incentives in place, things will shift. There, and if you put the right penalties in place, things will shift. I mean, healthcare flows as the money flows, you know, to an extent. And I hate to be or sound so cynical, but there's nothing wrong with that. That's how incentives and payment structures should work. You know, you should have to pay for things that matter and not pay for things that don't. And therefore, it's difficult to ask health systems to shift everything to the home if they're not going to be compensated for it. That's just being rational. Um, so you're starting to see you know, that change happening. And so, you know, you and I have been around enough to see enough of these trends, right? So, you know, someone will say something like, oh, Keith, that's only like 2% of visits or something. It has to be two before it becomes four. It has to be four become, before it becomes eight. And pretty soon it's 20, 30, 40. You know, things do begin to shift. And I do think it has to be supported financially in order to begin for a moment to think that uh, health systems are going to push it operationally. It doesn't mean that you know, creative people won't try to create applications or companies that play on that edge. You know, but we'll, those companies won't be successful if there's not a way to pay for those services. I mean, we know the consumer isn't going to pay out of pocket, you know, for those things. And you know, health systems aren't going to do it just because, quote unquote, it's easier or better than what they were doing before. Those kind of high-minded concepts often don't resonate in reality. And this does feel like a category. We actually have a uh, a strategic planning meeting coming up with our members uh, in May, and it is the topic we're spending all of our time on with them because they keep talking about it, which is how do I think about care at home? How do I think about it by service line? How do I think about it by enterprise? How do I think about it from a reimbursement angle? You know, there's a ton of companies that have been fairly early success in terms of the concept with Medically Home, Contessa, a few others. We just made an investment in an oncology play in the home space. And you know, it feels like everybody has said, oh yeah, COVID has accelerated everything by five or 10 years. But this is an area, in my opinion, that I feel like is going to stick. Now I could be wrong, but like many times, but it feels like an area to me that's going to stick because to your point, I think people have felt it for a year and says that we've got to have a different kind of nimble organization that literally delivers care in any, you know, what we call care anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you deliver care pretty much anywhere on a moment's notice? Yeah, I personally 
see people talking about this consistently at the strategic level. You know, so it's, that's a good sign. It's a really good sign. My only skepticism is that's in the middle of a pandemic when you and I are doing a virtual podcast and everyone's going to virtual conferences. You know, once we get uh, back from in vitro to in vivo, things will be a little bit different. But I do think, you know, the good news on virtual care is that a lot of people have woken up to investing in the space, you know, which is what you're referring to, and incenting that kind of activity from a federal government perspective. I mean, that is a really good sign. I've been in healthcare for 30 years. I can spend the next 10 hours talking about stories of industries and companies that were created simply because of a change in how healthcare is paid for. And I know you could too. Yeah. And this is a dicey angle, and then we'll move on to the scale point. But there was a recent MedPAC meeting specifically to talk about just telehealth reimbursement. Mm-hmm. And these are some of the smartest people around. Like, you know, most of the MedPAC members, you look at them, you're like, yeah, they know so much more than all of us. And they're just befuddled because when you think about how to come up with a payment policy, you know, is it parity? What happens across state lines, state licensure? There's so many issues associated with this digital transformation. I think regardless of the acceleration, this is kind of, I think, where you're going. Regardless of the acceleration of COVID, I still think this is going to be an elongated process because it's a very tangled web when you start with just Medicare and you think about what does CMS do with the big bolus of, of Medicare, let alone what the states do state by state with Medicaid. Yeah. Which all change the way they do that. And then let alone what do the commercials follow or not follow. And in this particular area, it's even more dicey because they're not really following because, oh, by the way, a lot of the payers also have their telehealth infrastructures. And so then you get into a really reimbursement grab ball. I had this great chat with Chaz Rhodes of Gist Healthcare last year on this point, which was like the telehealth grab ball. You know, where's it going to come from and how is it going to be reimbursed? So I, I agree with your point. I think it's going to be a long tail till we sort it out. Yeah, having seen a lot of kind of the rise and the fall of different companies and different ideas, there's a lot I I, uh, would claim ignorance on. But the one thing I think I know for sure is that there's only two things you really need to worry about with any healthcare company or product, and that's workflow and money flow. That's it. Yep. That's it. You know, so if if it doesn't work in someone's workflow, doesn't matter how good the idea is, it's just a point solution that just kind of sits out there. You know, I mean, wow, that's great. People will give you great feedback. You'll get three or five people to use it and then you'll be done. And then money flow. If no one's, you know, if you can't find someone to pay for it and they don't view it as a default, like, hey, this is something we really should do. You could play with ROI forever, but unless it really resonates, you're going to hit, you're going to hit a ceiling pretty quick. So let's, let's wrap up the JPM side. And I want to get your opinion on, on one other matter that we started with on the funding craziness, (laughs) the scale issue. You know, your view on that, you know, a little bit of a double-edged sword where, you know, my my editorial here is, you know, even back to my premiere days, you know, I can't tell you how many discussions we had with systems around scale and we've got to scale and we got to buy and we got to build. And then we got there with some of these systems and went, wait, it's too much. You know, it's too much dead weight to a certain degree. But I'm just curious how you're thinking about, because of all the discussions you're having with CFOs and other strategic folks on the strategic planning side, you know, where is everybody on this? I mean, are we really going to get to some utopian state where we've got 10 national systems that have the most scale, like, you know, other market concentrations or, you know, healthcare really truly is only local and will stay local? Yeah, that's a really good question. I have a couple different thoughts on that. So the big change over the last decade, Keith, and I think you've seen this as well, is that when someone was a health system 10 years ago, 
basically it was a bunch of acquisitions that had the same brand name, maybe, right? But they weren't really integrated operationally. Now you come back to now, 10 years later, man, has that shifted. So, I mean, there is an enormous change in mentality around how a health system operates and becoming more of an operating model versus just a, a brand or a, a, a you know a series of acquisitions. So I think scale from that perspective now actually matters because you can take advantage of it. You know, if everyone's doing something different, you know, and you have, you know, anyways, you understand what I'm saying, you know, distributed decision-making on literally everything, you know, you're not going to get any leverage. So I think you're starting to see that scale matters from that perspective. Point number one. Point number two is just, you know, a lot of these organizations had wonderful balance sheets, you know, so they were able to weather the storm. And I think, you know, when I made the point in this article, that's really, I think the point that most of the presentations were making is that they, uh, you know, kind of had the financial wherewithal to weather the storm. Uh, that's really what they were trying to say. And do you think those scale assets are different, though? So if you look at, I think it was Tenet that announced the big push into ASCs, ambulatory surgery centers, and another entity, I think, did in the last week or two, Ascension did, actually, at J.P. Morgan. Do you think that's where a lot of the scale is going to come from? They're going to be distributing sort of the asset class more so than just buying more hospitals? I think you're right. I, you know, I, I don't know how many more acquisitions of hospitals can happen except opportunistically, right? You know, so I think the number of hospitals that have been acquired every year has been pretty consistent for the most part over the last decade. So I'm sure that trend will continue, but I don't think it will pick up. What they were speaking to was more around diversification of assets. So as healthcare has shifted to the outpatient setting, <laughs> that hasn't gone unnoticed by any of these guys. No, so I think they're they're looking to diversify in a number of different ways. But yes, I think, you know, one of the points I, I made there is get your uh forget exactly how I, I termed it, but get your MA machine in motion. I think a lot of folks, unfortunately the strong got stronger, which is the point on scale, but the weak got weaker. And so there are going to be opportunities out there for for people to expand. But you know, some people are constrained in the market that they're in. They can't do any more acquiring. So they're either going to cross state lines or they're going to go into different asset classes, you know, what you were referring to. So maybe last question, which we could probably do a whole session on, but your point about sort of the cycles of deal making and the amount of money that's going on, right? We just had the biggest year ever in 2020 in terms of private equity and venture money going in. You know, we talk a lot. I just curious in your perspective, given the same discussions you're having with some of the leaders around the country in healthcare if you pan back a little bit, some of this is really trying to reimagine first unbundling care providers in certain classes and also reimagining payers, right? So you look at the devoted, you look at the clovers, you look at the Oscars of the world, mostly on MA because that's that's where they can get an edge. And then you look at, you know, Iora, ChenMed, One Medical, Oak, Village. We just pulled a chart from one of our partners actually on the provider side. These folks are making big dents now in some of the major metros. And I'm curious sort of because you've been at this so long, your perspective on this point, which is do you think this is what – how do these new entities take hold as they're taking hold and what impact does it have to the incumbents? And do these incumbents really have to start thinking differently about how they do partner? So One Medical has gone out and tried to partner in every one of their markets with a health system. And so there's kind of parity there. Others have gone to just compete. 
And so given where you sit in some of the strategy sessions and even some thinking that we see in those sessions at JP Morgan, you know, not many people talk about it too much. I'm curious sort of your perspective around that. Yeah, I'd say, you know, overall, you know, you're much closer to that than I am. But from my from my vantage point, at least what I've heard in conversations is that some are looking to form partnerships, right? Because they don't think they can compete directly. And I think you're going to see that activity really picking up. And I think that's the smart move for a lot of health systems. Others have the wherewithal to kind of get into new lines of business and think really differently, but that's not exactly an easy thing for a health system to pivot on. So I think you probably would think of the same names as I would, but the list isn't long. It isn't long. You know, so I I think you're going to see a lot of that kind of activity. And I do think, you know, health systems are extremely vulnerable towards creative carve-outs all over the place. You know, so when I said, you know, health care systems and hospitals prove that they're vital, you know, I meant it. They did. But the point of what I was writing was that, hey, you're going to have to do something different to have that same thing said about you 10 years from now for exactly the point that you made, because people are going to be carving things out and putting them in the home. They're going to be carving them out and putting them in more consumer-friendly structures. I mean, obviously, everyone gets caught up in uh, Walmart and Amazon and what they could potentially do. But there's many others out there, you know, who are looking to do those same kind of things in different ways. So I think it's, I mean, I know you hear the term a lot (laughs) that as COVID gets behind us, you know, it will become the roaring 20s 100 years later. I I think it's going to hopefully be the roaring 20s in healthcare, you know, where we really start to think very differently and are forced to think differently about delivering care in a, in a more effective, efficient, and affordable way. I don't think anybody could argue that. Yeah, it sure feels that way. Well, that's a great, great way to close. And, and Dan, again, I want to thank you. Hopefully we can make this an annualized thing because it's been it's always a lot of fun to talk to you. And, and more importantly, thank you for the friendship because it's been great over the years. But thanks again and uh, look forward to keep doing these. Yeah, thanks, Keith. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you in a year. No, just kidding. We'll, <laughs> we'll try to get to sooner than that. But no, I appreciate the opportunity to join. And, and thanks for hosting these podcast. I've learned a lot by listening. Great. Thanks, man. All right. Well, that's another great interview by Keith Figlioli. If you want to hear more from Keith, you can find him on LinkedIn. You can also follow him on Twitter. He is at Keith Figlioli. That's F-I-G-L-I-O-L-I. You can also find me on both. I'm Tom Salemi. I'm the host of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast and our Device Talks Tuesdays meeting series. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. You can find me on LinkedIn as well, Tom Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. You can subscribe to this podcast on all of the major podcast platforms. Please do subscribe. Please do share this podcast with your colleagues and your friends, and make sure you tag Keith and myself when you do that so we can be part of the conversation. That's a wrap. Tune in next month. We'll have another great episode of Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders waiting for you.